Yeah, it's good to, to know some of the context behind some of the hymns we sing. Um, as uh, Jordan has brought to our attention this morning, Martin Luther with that first one about God being our refuge and even this last one. During the week, and this has got nothing to do at all with the sermon, but I was thinking about it. Uh, you know that old, old hymn you'll all remember and all know well that um, it says, I have decided to follow Jesus. And the chorus goes something like this, no turning back, no turning back. And I uh, always thought that, you know, that was sort of like a, a very, a hymn that was very man-centered, you know. And um, it was basically our eternal destiny is solely dependent on, on I have decided to follow Jesus. But sometimes these hymns have context. And this one, I came across the context of this hymn in the last couple of weeks. And I'll share this with you. seems I've got a little bit of time. Over a hundred years ago, well over a hundred years ago, in India, northern India, way up in the north, and I don't even know particularly what state it was, but there were some missionaries, and I think they came from sort of Europe area somewhere, and, um, and they did a work amongst the Indian folk, amongst the villages up, way up in northern India. And, um, and a, a number of them got saved. But what happened was, and it's great to see, a number of these Indian converts became missionaries par excellence themselves so that there was no need for the foreign missionaries and so the gospel spread amongst these villages and because these villages were extremely Hindu extreme and there was much hatred towards these Christians and there was this one particular Indian evangelist missionary uh, whom the Hindu leaders decided that they would make a lesson and so that they could teach all these other Christians so-called Christians who were converting to um, the faith in, in God. And so they got his family and uh, they said, we're going to kill you all if you don't recant. And so he said, we can't. The father said, we can't recant. So this man had a wife and a family. And so with that, in a public square, they got, pulled out his daughter and they shot her to death. And one by one, his, his children died. And in the end, his wife was pulled out he says, will you recant? Will you recant? And this is what the words he says. I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. And with that they shot her, then they shot him. And um, whenever I sing that hymn and think of that hymn, and maybe we can, we'll think of that occasion. That's the context of it. A man who stood his ground, and I think we saw something like that, you know. I'm not ashamed of the testimony of owning Jesus Christ. I wonder what we would do in such situations. So there's a wonderful context behind these hymns that helps us to understand and appreciate something of what it is to be a Christian. Anyway, we're going to turn to our text this morning, and uh, we're going to finish off chapter 9 and uh, have a look at what the Lord says to us through these words. And... Um, this is a, a quite a long a, a, a section that begins basically 9, 10, and 11 and, um, and we're just making our way through it and, uh, and the Apostle Paul is continuing to answer his readers as he anticipates them asking questions. And so he supplies these rhetorical questions in his letter to the Romans and, um, and then gives answers to his own questions. 
And um, he picks up here in, uh, in verse 25 of chapter 9 of Romans. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, he would have become, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. In other words, they would have been destroyed and hiliated. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. May God bless his word together. I think we've got some PowerPoints here. If we can have our, our first one up, uh, just a bit of a, a, a title. And um, I've just got a couple of pics there of Christ with a big stone behind him and uh, the cross, of course. And um, just by way of introduction, I want to ask you a question, a question, a rhetorical one, I guess, but you can answer it yourselves. and I know you'll answer it the same way as I have. You know, those times when you've, you miss something or you can't find something, um, and then, and then upon reflection, and as you think back, that thing that you could not find, that thing you could not put your hand on to find, etc., it was in your face all the time. This happens a lot, especially when we do go looking for something. It happens to me, you know, when I go looking for my car keys or my wallet, my wife has to remind me, it was staring at you at the face all the time. And um, I have to admit that that was true. And I know you all experience that. Well, in a different field, in a future day, the remnant nation of Israel, okay? The remnant nation of Israel will give not a joyful response, but a woeful, repentant cry over truth that has been staring at them in the face for thousands of years. This will be a day when God we're told in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, what he's going to do, he's going to pour out his spirit on the house of David. That's Israel, another word for David, just like sometimes Israel is called Jacob. He's going to pour out his spirit on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the spirit of grace and supplication. What will he do that for? Zechariah 12 and 10 says, so that they will look on Jesus whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter, bitter weeping over a firstborn. But in the meantime, that hasn't happened yet. 
Israel as a nation has not got there yet. But in the meantime, this rebellious nation, it is stumbling around, blind to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, their long-awaited Messiah. They're stumbling around. They're blinded. Okay? But not only that, not only that, Gentiles are now being declared righteous by God through faith. While the Jews think that they are the only elect ones of God. Even today, Gentiles generally are looked down upon by the religious Jews of the day as they were in Paul's day. They were looked upon down as as dogs, they were even called. And, And still today, religious Jews consider themselves the only ones who are chosen and elect by God. So we might ask ourselves at this point, Well, what's up with God's plan, this unique plan concerning his elect special nation that has been chosen through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Because after all, as we've been going through the book of Genesis, we see that right through the Bible. God has a plan for Israel as a nation, okay? And so what's up with this plan? Has God failed? in keeping up his covenant and maybe fallen back to a plan B kind of deal because things didn't work out, especially when Israel was sent the Messiah and the person of Jesus Christ, because they didn't accept them, has God sort of uh, negated back to plan B, as it were? First of all, we must understand that God never has and never will have a plan B. God never changes his mind. Even though it may appear to us at times, like we have here in this text and its surrounds, that he does. God never does. But this is what the Apostle Paul is explaining here. He is saying, no, God has not defaulted to plan B or a plan B. His perfect original plan for Israel will be carried out just as he declared through the Old Testament prophets, Hosea and Isaiah. In other words, Paul sets out to declare that because the nation of Israel has been set aside by God because of their rebellion and the rejection of Messiah, this does not mean that his original plan for the nation has been trashed. This is what he's making clear here. And it will get clearer as we go into chapter 11, 10 11. Even Israel's continuing period, I'm talking Israel, I'm talking them as, a, as an ethnic nation here, okay? As an ethnic nation of people. Even Israel's continuing period of unbelief as it continues to this present day is in accordance to God's sovereign purposes. Why? so that this unique nation, the the nation that God will bring through all the trial and tribulation that is going to come ahead of them, so that this unique nation might be saved, the only way anyone can be saved is through faith and not by works. See, our study this morning is going to look briefly at how, how Paul approached this, can we call it a religious conundrum that needed sorting out then in Paul's day, and I believe, needs sorting out today, in our day, over and over. And so my first point up on the PowerPoint is um, 
is Israel's unbelief is consistent with what God revealed in the Old Testament. Okay? It's consistent with what God revealed in the Old Testament. What Paul does here in this first little section is he takes his readers back to two Old Testament prophets, Hosea and Isaiah. And these men had predicted that Israel's unbelief and rejection of Jesus the Messiah was going to be a reality. Now, if you remember the story of Hosea, we'll deal with Hosea briefly first. He was a prophet whom God asked to marry a harlot. Okay? Now, we're not too sure whether Goma, the lady that he married, was a harlot before he married her or she became a harlot or a loose woman, if you want to call her that, after he married her. We're not too sure. We're not told. But whatever he says, go and marry as this woman of harlotry. And so we see that and we can read of the whole vivid analogy in this real-life drama of what God was doing. What he was doing through this marriage to this woman of God's man for, uh, to, to, to this woman was, was showing how Israel was going to be and was already at that time spiritually unfaithful to Yahweh, God. That's what he was doing through this drama. You know, even the meaning of the names of Hosea and Gomer's children born to this marriage, all depicted God's attitude toward this nation. Just think about this. How would you like to call your kids God sows? Because that's the first one. The first one was called, that's what I'll just give you the English, you can look up your own time what, the, what the, the Hebrew name was, but the first son was called God sows, you know, like you sow the seed. And, it, and this was referring to scattering of seeds. And it referred to the scattering of his people God's people in the days of our days ahead and the days to come. Because this was prior to, or, uh, to to Babylon, especially Babylon. Syria had probably taken place, was about to invade the north, and Babylon was still yet to come. And so his first son was called God sows and referred to the scattering of his people because of their rebellious sinfulness. The second child was named not pitied or no pity. And another son was called, not my people. So you can sort of see the links even right here in this quote that we have in Isaiah, right? So the first one is called God sows. The second one was called not pitied. And the third one, the next one was called not my people. And in all this drama, what it does is it vividly shows through Hosea the prophet what God was saying. It was saying that because of Israel's unfaithfulness for a divinely appointed period, now understand this, for a divinely appointed period, they would be scattered like sown seed and they would be unpitied by God and they would also be forsaken by God. That's what he was telling them through the prophet. But of course, as you read on in Hosea, you, you only need to go to chapter 2 in Hosea and um, you will see that this divinely appointed period of forsakenness, etc., is not going to be permanent toward Israel. The Lord in his mercy will pour out his grace upon her as a nation. Hosea 2.19 says, And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and compassion. Now we're talking of a nation here, okay? 
This is what was prophesied in Isaiah. And I believe this, this links up with the prophet Zechariah when he says, I will pour out my spirit of grace upon you. And when you see me, you will mourn because of me, because you will then understand all right, the truth before us, right under our noses. We were the ones that crucified the Messiah. And you'll mourn because of that. And great repentance will come upon the nation. As we read in chapter 11 in the book of Romans, the next chapter, Israel will be saved as in a day. So this appointed time is only for a period. But until this time, God will not treat Israel as his people, but will treat Gentiles who were not his people as his people. Praise God for that, right? Praise the Lord for that. And once again, we're going to have a little bit more clarification of that in the next chapter. Because if it wasn't for this, in other words, if it wasn't for Israel's rejection, God's mercy would not in the same way be directed toward Gentiles. And that's you and me. I don't think we have any Jews amongst us. And this is what Paul cites here in Romans from Hosea. Israel is a nation in Paul's time and today are still in this divinely appointed period where God has cast them aside because of their spiritual unfaithfulness. And the crowning act, if you want, the crowning act of their spiritual unfaithfulness of this divinely appointed time of rejection was the the rejection, their rejection of the Messiah Jesus. They've done a lot of unfaithful things. And, um, and, and they're scattered. You remember Assyria and Babylonian captivity. The people were scattered, okay? And there was, there was, there was a, a return to Jerusalem, but, but it was never ever like it was under David and Solomon. It was never ever the same again. And, and so they built up and you had another four, five hundred years and then Jesus came and they rejected him again to find truth. And, and, and they were scattered like never before. And we know this is the dispersion or the diaspora. You even have that in Acts 1 where, where, where Jews were scattered. And even right to this present day, you want to think about Jews, Israel as a nation, there are more Jews still living in other countries than in the land of Israel. There are scattered people. They're blinded to the truth because of their rejection of God's truth and specifically of their Messiah. And Paul says here, but what would you expect? What else would you expect? After all, look what Israel did with Messiah. What she did with the, with the, Messiah, with the Messiah, she has done consistently with the prophets that God has sent to her down through the ages. What would you expect? Because she's had this, this as it were, this curse placed upon her by God. God has forsaken her. She's going to be scattered. She's not going to be my people for a period. And of course, when they came to the wonderful truth or the wonderful opportunity of knowing Jesus as their Messiah, in their blindness, they still rejected him. And so though they're still living in a state, still living in a state of blindness and unbelief. And, and you know what? They're going to continue to do so until what? Until God removes the scale from their eyes and they can see truth spiritually. And it's only then by his grace and mercy they will see that they will find what has been staring their, them in the face for this long divinely appointed period. 
and this nation will be saved. It will be delivered. It will be delivered. Go flick over the next chapter and read with me, please. Uh, chapter, yeah, chapter 11. Sorry, the next two chapters. Chapter 11, verse 25. We will, we will, we'll get to this eventually, but let's sort of read this now. Chapter, 20, uh, chapter 11, verse 25. For I do not want you to want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And here we go. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until when? Until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. You see, there's the appointed time. This partial hardening, this blindness, this forsakenness, this scattering, they're still in it until the time of the Gentiles. And you say, well, when's the time of the Gentiles? God knows, only him. Okay? But there will be a specific ending of this period. And it carries on. And so Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Isn't that a wonderful time? It's all going to fall into place. You see, God has not reneged or gone back to plan B or a plan B. And, um, and then we see that Paul cites another Old Testament prophet to sort of back up the same idea of, of this um, uh, period but at the same time, he brings something else in it. And, um, and what Paul does here is he brings his readers' attention to the fact that there's going to be, that there's a great number of people of Israel that they're like the land of the sea, but only a remnant will be saved. Okay? Only a remnant will be saved. And, um, and he said, though Israel, verse 27, Israel cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. That's his point here. There's going to be a huge amount of people. There are a huge amount of people that do belong to Israel. But his main point is that only a remnant of the huge amount of people will be saved. Not all will be saved. And um, this has happened before in Israel's history. I'm thinking of the hundreds of thousands that were, were slaughtered at the, in the, when the Assyria came from the north and, and took over the northern kingdom. I'm thinking the, the hundreds of thousands that were slaughtered when Nebuchadnezzar came down. There was only a remnant that were, were taken to Babylon. The remnant theology runs through all the way, all the way, all the way. And even before that, you remember, you remember Elijah. And... Um, and he'd done that wonderful deed up on Mount Carmel, you know, where he'd put to shame the prophets of Baal. And, um, and, and a mighty man in, in the hands of God he was there that day. But, but uh, that soon left him because he became fearful of Jezebel because Jezebel says, I'm, I'm going to deal with this. And so she went on the rampage. And she started killing every Jew and every Jewish uh, prophet. Or, and she was on, they were on the hunt. She was on the hunt. And they were slaughtering them by the thousands every child of Israel that they came across. And so Elijah got frightened about this and he took off and he says, woe is me, I'm contemporizing this, woe is me, Lord, but I'm the only one left and um, they're going to kill me. All your people have forsaken you and your covenants, they've recanted and they've killed all your prophets. What did the Lord respond with? Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. You see, there's nothing new. The Lord always saves remnant. It's what we call remnant theology. 
And so as in the past, the Lord has always saved the remnant of his covenant of people and he will do so in a day yet to come. He in his grace and his mercy, though all, both Jew and Gentile, deserve destruction and we do deserve destruction, God will save a remnant. So not all Israel will be saved. And when we want to switch from that, when we look about to us as Gentiles, no, not all Gentiles will be saved either, only a remnant. Who are the remnant? Because it's only those, those who are the remnant are those whom God has chosen by his grace to come to him through faith and faith alone. The chosen are those from both Jew and Gentile people in our day called the bride, his church. That's the remnant. And if we have the, the church, we think of the church today in contemporary terms, we, we see a, a huge false church, right? There's all sorts of stuff. There's religious people, there's all sorts of people thinking that they are right before God. So there's, there's this huge false church, but within this false church, there's a true church, and the true church is made up of those who have trusted and put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the remnant. That's the remnant. But there will be a time in God's prophetic program when he will take up with Israel again and he will save them and um, where this time of separation, can you call it, this divorce period, as it were, it will be over this because her spiritual adultery, God will, he will in grace move upon them as we have read in chapter 11, verse 25 and 27. He will forgive their sins and he will bless that remnant forever and ever. There'll be no turning back from then, then on. So Israel's unbelief then and still is what God prophetically revealed through the Old Testament. And uh, Israel is in spiritual blindness today and it will be until that appointed time is over. We get our second point and we'll see that Israel's unbelief is... is uh, it's consistent with God's requirement of faith being necessary for salvation. Why have I got that? But I'll just explain that a little bit. It's, it, 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 see, how did Israel, how did the most religious people, even not Jews, think they're going to be made right with God? It simply is by what they do. And so what Paul, Paul finally gets to uh, here is that, that God requires unbelievers to come to him in faith. Now, I want you to see this very, very clearly. It's a very simple truth and you know it extremely well, I know. But here it is in our text and we need to uh, be reminded of it. And, but as we try and get our heads around all this, we soon come to that familiar um, tension we experience between God's sovereign electing grace and his choice of us and at the same time, trying to weld into that man's responsibility to believe. There's that tension there, right? And, um, and I think it's a beautiful tension. It needs to be left in tension, by the way. But the problem is some of us either, no, 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 I don't like the tension, so I'm going to either slip that way completely or that way completely. And we end up both being wrong doing that way. So there's a beautiful tension where God has sovereignly chosen, just like he has said to Israel, there's going to be an appointed time where you're going to be blinded to your sin, but even in that time, he offers grace and mercy. He sent his son, offering them to Israel. You think, what? It was impossible for them to believe anyway, because that appointed time, 
had not, the times of Gentiles had not come in. And at the same time, there is a human responsibility on individuals to put their faith in Him. And I think that's the key. You see, God always works not through religious system. He always works through individuals' hearts to respond to Him in faith. I don't care what church you belong to, what, whether, whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Catholic, whatever. It doesn't mean a darn thing. The Lord works with individuals. And He demands them to put their personal faith and trust in Him. He demands faith on man's part. And by the way, when we think about this, He demands faith on our part, trust on our part, I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back, no turning back. Okay, he demands that of us, but in that way, that in no way contradicts or violates his sovereign will towards his people, his chosen, his elect, his remnant. In no way violates that. Now, we may struggle to get our heads around that, but in this tension there, but leave it in tension. That's God's business, I believe. By faith we grasp and depend that God will never save anyone who does not believe in him, but also that a person cannot save himself or herself simply by an act of his or her own will, no matter how sincere or how good they are. This is the fundamental truth of the gospel. And this is exactly what Paul's beef was in our text. He was Jewish, right? But he understood God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He had a grasp of that. He grasped that tenacious fact by faith and God used him to write this. You see, the Jews here in Paul's day and still today were religious and sincere. They pursued the law of God. After all, Paul even gives his own testimony when he was still a Jew, remember? I was zealous for the law of God. If you want to see a good Jew, you have a look at the life of Paul before he got saved. And... Um, and he, he, was, he, was a, he was one of the zealous Jews and, who pursued the law of God relentlessly. And then on the other hand, here in our text, you have pagan Gentiles, dogs as they called them then, that's what our name would have been if we lived in his day, not politically correct today, but there was a lot of racial tension and hatred then too. You had these people, Gentiles, who had no history at all with Yahweh or the true God. Nothing at all. They were idolaters. They were pagan worshippers. And yet they were being blessed by God with a salvation that the Jews thought only should be theirs. You see the tension? You see the difficulties? You see the questions that would have been asked? And so we say, what is this? What made the difference? Why were good living religious Jews missing out and once pagan Gentiles now receiving the salvation blessing? This was a religious conundrum. This was a religious problem, a religious issue. Then, and I say very clearly, it still is today, but people are so blind they can't see it. The answer is here. It's simply faith. That's the answer. The difference is faith. Israel did not pursue God's righteousness or God's righteous ways of salvation by faith. That's what the text tells us. They pursued it by simply keeping or trying to keep a bunch of rules. There was nothing wrong with the rules. 
A lot of them were God's rules, even though by this time they have polluted the rules and made up a lot of their own and added to them. And Jesus tried to put that straight when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 to chapter 7. But by and large, they were pursuing God's righteousness and God's standard and God's merit by what they were doing themselves. And we know this is a works-based salvation. You see, to, to, to Israel, righteousness was all about working out zealously, like Paul used to, in the religious awards department. And so today... Today, what does that look like? Can I suggest that it would be people who attend Mass by the thousands? People who attend church services thinking, well, they may have a guilty conscience or they belong to some religion and so they need to to put some brownie points or good points on one shoulder so that even even the bad up in their life or whatever. They may even sort of take communion thinking that all these religious ceremonies somehow will cause God to think better of them. You see, there's no difference. And this is what the Jews were doing. Ironically, that kind of good behaviour or good works never gets anyone near God's standard of righteousness. And you folks, religion never has and it never will. Religion in and of itself. You see, the ultimate gift, the very truth that God gave Israel, the Son of God, Israel could not accept that. To them, to be right with God was about not what someone else could do or someone outside of themselves did, but to them, to be right with God is what they did or what their religious system told them that they must do. The Messiah, the one who was given to them, he had the right lineage. He was the the son of David. You read the book of Matthew. That's why there's so many quotations in the book of Matthew more than any of the other gospel that are pulled from the Old Testament because this Matthew's gospel was written specifically to Jews. And so they had a specific book, as it were, written directly to them. Hey, Jews, Israel, your Messiah is here and here's the proof. He had the right lineage. He was from the son of David. He was the light that dawned among the people of darkness when he went up to the Sea of Galilee. He had that in Matthew 4, 16. He was the promised healer of infirmities and diseases, promised from Isaiah 53. He was the Lamb of God's own providing for Israel's sins. John's Gospel tells us that. He was the suffering servant as prophesied by Isaiah. He had all the credentials, but you know what? They stumbled over him. They stumbled They could not see past their own self-righteousness to accept the truth of his message and of his person. As I heard Paul quotes, he said, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes him will not be in haste. Isaiah 28, 16. You see, folks, the true rock of their salvation, it became their very stumbling stone. It was, became a, a rock of offense to them. And they ultimately cried out because they could not see past their own self-righteousness. They ultimately cried out, away with them, away with them, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. You see, folks, no matter how 
no matter who and no matter how religious a person is or how good a life a person lives, they will never know God's salvation blessing apart from personal faith and the work and the person of Jesus Christ at Calvary, Jew or Gentile alike. And that message is to individuals. And Jesus went and preached that message of himself and he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to get that real good, folks, real good. The salvation is never, never, ever apart from personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We need to get that real good and we need to tell others about it real good. Make sure that that's real clear because that's the heart of the gospel. So Paul sets out clearly for his original readers and us today that Israel's unbelief is consistent with God's requirement of faith being necessary for salvation. He wasn't going to bless this nation while they were still in unbelief. Absolutely no way. Abraham, how, well, how was Abraham counted as righteous and right before God and saved, as we can, if we can put it that way? Abraham, it says, believed in God. There's your faith commitment. There's your personal responsibility. And it was counted or declared unto him as righteousness. God has never had a plan B. And he wasn't about to flick into something else here. The way of salvation has always been the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's always centered. Even in the Old Testament, they looked forward to the person of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. They didn't have all the details that we knew, we know of, but they knew that there was one. Moses says, I'm going to send one who is a prophet like unto yourself, a greater one. They knew that there was one coming who would be a redeemer. And we look back, of course, to Jesus Christ. Our final point on the PowerPoint is a question. What excuse or stumbling stone blinds you to placing genuine faith in Jesus Christ? You see, folks, can I suggest that as in Paul's day, where Judaism blinded the eyes of faith for so many good living Jews to the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ, this also, hear me out on this, happens big time today, big time. Maybe not Judaism, maybe that's not the issue but in our naturalness, get this, in our naturalness, we lean toward belief systems that tell us what we do in ourselves and our own effort and our own religious ceremonies that we keep will earn us God's blessing. In our naturalness, that's the way we are bent naturally. You know what? That's the greatest lie of the devil. And that lie takes people to hell. And you know what? That lie can still be present here in this church in your mind and in your heart. Yes, it can. You could be relying on, on coming here Sunday after Sunday. You could be relying on, on maybe membership. You could be relying on, on communion participation or hanging out with the right people. When the real personal truth that God is confronting you with in regards to personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're stumbling over. It's a rock of offence to you and so you, you, you negate that and rely on your own efforts. You see, we're religiously false by nature and we will stumble over truth 
the truth of Jesus Christ, where faith in him alone is the only way of salvation. You see, even when that absolute truth is right under our noses, so to speak, we will stumble over it. Israel did. Israel did. By the thousands. They still are. For thousands of years, they still are. But individually, they are still responsible to come to God in response to his grace and mercy. But what good news sums this all up, right? I love the last verse here. See the last verse? He who believes in him will not be disappointed. You see that? What a wonderful promise. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. May we be challenged and examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith this morning. I'm not causing you, I don't want you to doubt your salvation. That's the last thing in the world I want you to do. We know that we're saved. You know that you're saved and, and true to the Lord. But, but maybe there's someone here this morning has nagging doubts. Well, just bow your head right where you are and just say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I want to trust you for my salvation. The Lord Jesus died for my sin on the cross. And my only defense against his wrath and an eternity in hell is what he's done for me. And I trust that you will forgive my sin in him. Bow your head and pray that prayer. If you're doubting and you're just not too sure where you are. And then trust Jesus at his word. Trust God's word that he has accomplished it. Because he has promised that he who believes in him will not be disappointed. May God bless the gospel of his grace to us this morning.